Well, hey guys, good morning. Welcome to Grace Church. Good to have you guys here today. Thanks for joining us. That big bright thing in the sky is the sunshine. It's nice to see that today too. So hope you guys are enjoying your morning so far. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to say too, uh, I think Tina said this earlier, if, the, if you're visiting today, like if this is the first time that you're here, um, just so glad that you've joined us. You're our guest. We want you to feel that way. Um, just kind of relax. I know it's, it could be weird going into a new place, maybe especially a church, you know, and not knowing what to expect and stuff. But we'd love for you to just be yourself and relax. Hopefully this morning will be an encouragement to you. Hopefully you feel very welcome and loved. Um, but then also a challenge to you as well. Um, this week we're starting a series that's really different than any other series that we've done so far as a campus. And it's called Deception, The Father Lies. And we're talking about um, an enemy, a common enemy that we have. So this week I was reading, um, just kind of reading up on enemies, and I, I stumbled across this article on like the top 10 most famous enemies, something like that. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I wonder how many of these I know, you know. As I pull it up and I'm reading it, and the first one was uh, two, two of the greatest inventors in the history of our country, Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison, the, the wizard of Menlo Park, right? Like two of the greatest, smartest guys you ever met. And so these guys, I didn't know, you know, these guys were enemies, and the reason that they were enemies was because um, uh, Tesla thought that the future of electric power in our country was alternating current, AC, and Thomas Edison thought that the future of power in our country was direct current, DC. That's the reason they were enemies. I guess if you're really smart, that's a good reason to be an enemy with somebody. I don't know. Uh, the, the next one that we read about was um, uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. Turns out those are not just the names of two Ninja Turtles. Those are, <laughs> I knew that actually, uh, but two of the, you know, greatest well-known Renaissance artists of all time, late 1500s, early 1600s, and they hated each other, which is interesting. I didn't know that. Um, the next one, I have like a vague recollection from learning in school. It was um, Aaron Burr on the left there, your left, and uh, Alexander Hamilton. And so these guys, so these are two of the founding fathers of our country. This just makes me laugh. These are two of the founding fathers of our country and they hated each other. So they would like compete with each other. They campaigned against each other. They tried to humiliate each other. And um, it, it came to the point where Aaron Burr challenged Alexander Hamilton. Some of you know this, you're smiling. Alexander Hamilton to a duel. These are the people that founded our country, okay? A duel with guns to the death and Alexander Hamilton agreed to it, and so they do this duel, and Aaron Burr shoots him in the stomach and kills him. There you go. That's some serious enemies right there, right? And then I let, read about uh, kind of the, the most famous enemies in, in I think, in the, maybe the history of our country, two groups of families, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? The Hatfields and McCoys, so two big families in the Kentucky, West Virginia area, and, you know, like, these guys hated, like an entire family, two families over decades hating each other. And so I remember a couple years ago, I watched this biopic about them on like the History Channel or something like that. And it's so interesting. And so, you know, you have like the two patriarchs of the family, the guy, the patriarch of the Hatfields, his name was Devil Ants Hatfield, which you know you're a tough dude, a pretty bad dude if your nickname is Devil, right? So he's Devil Ants Hatfield. And then you have Randolph McCoy. And they say, like history says, that the, like the pivotal point, what really turned it into a feud was a dispute over a pig. A pig! 
like decades of violence and hurting, each, like sabotaging each other, killing each other because you have a disagreement over a hog. Like that's what, that's what that like constitutes enemies. I thought it was so interesting. So then I started thinking about in my own life, you know, like do I have any enemies or did I have any enemies? And I, I don't know that I have, you know, any for, for quite a while, but I started remembering back to middle school. When I was in middle school, we were all kind of knuckleheads in middle school, right? Like we had, admit that. Um, so in middle school, I was like a big basketball player. I loved to play basketball despite my stature here. I love basketball. And, um, and so in middle school, the team that I played on, the league that we played in, um, my team and this other team were usually the two best teams. And we hated each other. Like we detested each other. And so, you know, they were kind of cocky and arrogant. And if I'm honest, we were kind of cocky and arrogant. And sometimes they would win and sometimes we would win. And so the school that I was at was in the Ellet area and they were out in Stowe. And so they were like the rich kids, you know, we're like, man, we want to beat those rich kids. Well, so we kind of went back and forth. There was the, uh, the point guard. So I was a point guard. The point guard of that team was like my arch nemesis. He was like, my rival. I could not stand him, right? And so when we, in middle school, um, just kind of the way it worked out, we went to rival high schools. And so a bunch of them went to one of the high schools and a bunch of us went to this other high school. And so the rivalry continued on through high school. And it was the same sort of thing. Like sometimes they would win, sometimes we would win. But whatever happened, we wanted to punch each other in the face. Like that's just kind of how it was. So fast forward this is ridiculous. This makes me look terrible, so forgive me, but I think it makes the point well. So fast forward to when um, I graduated from high school. I was in college, and we came back um, on like some sort of break from college, spring break or something, and a friend of mine had a party, and so I went to the party, and um, while I was at the party, there was another. So the first guy, let me say this, we'll, we'll call the first guy Brian that didn't like me, okay? The, the rival point guard. That's not his real name. We'll call him Brian. I go to this party, and there's this other guy, we'll call him Carl, who also didn't like me. I didn't know that. I apparently was his enemy. And so we're at this party, and I find out that he wants to fight me. And I'm like, okay, I didn't even know that we were enemies, but okay. So we kind of, they kind of pulled us apart, and they pulled me inside. And um, I'm standing inside, and they're like, yeah, you know, Carl wants to fight you. You got to get ready for this. I'm like, okay, well, here we go. And then somebody comes in, somebody else comes into the house, and they go, guess who's here? Brian's here, your other enemy. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Both these guys want to fight me. So I'm like getting ready. I'm not really sure what to do. And I'm waiting. And then another guy busts in the house. And he's like, you're never going to believe this. Brian just beat up Carl. <laughs> I'm like, what? So, so wait a second. Brian hated Carl more than he hated me. That's really good news for me, right? And so I go outside and I go up to Brian and I'm like, I shake his hand, I'm like, buddy, we are no longer enemies. We are friends from now on, right? That's good. That's your pastor. That's me. <sighs> anyway, so um, this week we're starting a new series, like I said, um, talking about a common enemy that we have. And he's not an enemy that will one day be our friend, he's not an enemy that will one day like, have a change of heart. Uh, and will come to our aid. Uh, this is a different sort of enemy. It's an enemy that hates you. Uh, this is an enemy that wants to destroy you. He wants to, to take everything good out of your life. And he's super smart. He's uh, highly observant and he's aware. And he also has an army of others that hate you and want to destroy your life as well. And um, in the Bible, it describes a little bit of 
the, um, the, the mindset and the actions of this enemy that you and I um, are facing all of the time. It says things like this, that he wants to devour you. It says that in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says things like he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you in John chapter 10. It says that he wants to torment you in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says that he wants to deceive you and trick you and lie to you in John chapter 8. It says that he wants to accuse you and make you feel worthless about yourself in Zechariah chapter 3. And it says that he wants to tempt you and me to sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so you hear that and you're like, you know, if we have an enemy who wants to hurt us, uh, we need to be aware, right? And we need to be prepared. And so um, in this series, that's kind of the, the goal of this series is that um, we become aware of this enemy that we have and the desires of the enemy and what he wants to do in our lives and so that we're ready to be able to respond to this enemy. And so, I, so this is a little, I said this earlier, it's a little different conversation than, than we've ever had actually as a campus. So if you're newer to Grace Church, we're a campus that's been around, we're coming up on our three-year anniversary and so here at Easter, we'll be around for three years. And, and I, I've never, since, I've, uh, since we've been here, I've never preached a series on this, on our, on our enemy, on the devil, on Satan. Um, partially because the Bible talks a lot more, and I'll, I'll bring this out a little bit later, but the Bible talks a lot more about God and who he is and his thoughts about us and how he loves us. And so most of the time, that's what we talk about. And yet the Bible also talks about this enemy. And so I feel like it's important for us to take a little time and talk through this. And so the goal of this series is just to have a real honest conversation about the spiritual forces of evil in our world and how we're affected by it and how we should respond to it. A few weeks ago, uh, I was just kind of clicking on some news stories and there was a headline from a um, popular daytime talk show TV co-host who was responding to a statement made by our vice president, by Mike Pence. And so Pence was talking about um, praying to and um, talking to and listening to Jesus. That's kind of the terminology that he used. And um, this daytime talk show host responded this way. She said, this is, this is on air. She said, it's one thing to talk about Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. That's called mental illness. And, you know, she's a comedian, and so, you know, you can kind of go, okay, well, whatever. And she got a lot of backlash for that, and then she responded, and she's kind of like, well, you know, I, I, it's, just, it's just a joke. I'm just sort of, you know, making fun of the situation. However, you look at our culture, and increasingly, this is kind of becoming the belief system of our culture. We step back and we go, you know what? If I can't see something, if I can't touch it, if I can't smell it, if I can't taste it, if I can't hear it, if I can't engage with it, with one, at least one of my five senses, then it must not be real, right? It must not exist if I can't engage with it with my five senses. And so we apply subtly, I think it sort of creeps in, we apply that kind of logic to God and we're like, I don't know, is God real? Like I've never seen him, I can't hear him, I can't touch him. And then we also apply that same sort of logic to the enemy, to the devil. And we say things like, come on, like you, you expect me to believe that there is a devil with horns on his head and a spike tail and a pitchfork in his hand and he's down there somewhere in hell 
but he's trying to make our lives really difficult. And I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't smell him. I can't any of that. Like, that's what you're trying to get me to believe. And we go, no, that's not what we're saying he's like. That's how cartoons describe him, right? What we're saying is there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm that's mostly unseen by us in which spiritual beings hate you and are doing everything they can to try to pull you away from the God that loves you, right? I was having a conversation, this is some years ago, I was sitting at a table um, with some friends of mine, there's probably five or six of us at the table, and one of the guys at the table was, um, so literally, he used to be a rocket scientist at NASA. So like we joke about it, we're like, you know, who do you think you are, a rocket scientist? He really was a rocket scientist. So this guy's like a brilliant, brilliant guy. And we're sitting around the table and we were talking and um, somehow the conversation turned to like dimensions, like the different dimensions of existence. And, and so like you and me, we live in uh, three, really four, so we say 3D, right? And so we have length, we have height, we have depth. We live in three dimensions and then we also exist in time. Time is a fourth dimension. Right? And so from our perspective, we're like, this is, this is existence. This is what's real, something in these four dimensions. And yet this guy was saying, he was talking about how scientists today believe that there's other dimensions that exist in reality that we just as human beings can't perceive. This is so interesting to me. We, we actually weren't made to perceive. We weren't built to perceive. And yet now scientists believe that they exist. So probably none of us in here are theoretical physicists. I know I'm not. Um, but if you were, you'd be well acquainted with this theory um, that a lot of them have now called string theory. And so I was reading about it this week and it's, it's interesting to me because when I was in high school, like this wasn't around. When I was in college, this wasn't around. It's, it's, it's like the data is, is moving these scientists to go, there's something beyond what we recognize, what we can perceive as real, right? And so if you were a uh, theoretical physicist, you'd be well acquainted with this theory and you would see that the data is moving these scientists to go, you know what, there's actually a lot more to reality than just these four dimensions that you and I experience. And then as Christians, we take a step back and we're like, yeah, you know what? Um, the, the Bible has talked about this sort of thing for a long time. Right? And so for us, we can go, you know what, it's, it's arrogant and it's naive and it's foolish of us to say, well, you know what, if I can't experience something with my five senses, it must not exist. It must not be real. Right? The scientists are going, actually, there's a lot of stuff that seems to exist beyond our five senses that is very real, that certainly exists. The Bible has talked about this world that exists beyond our five senses literally thousands of years ago. It was talking about it, right? And so maybe, just maybe, it's wise for us to step back and go, you know what, maybe I should listen to the God who says he created everything. And he gives us in his word, this, he talks about this stuff that is very important for us. It's important enough to him that, that he puts it in his word so that we could understand it and be careful, right? And so believing in Satan and demons and angels and God and their interaction with us, it's not mental illness to believe that. 
right? No matter what some comedian says. It's not believing in fairy tales. It's humbly acknowledging that there is a lot more to our existence than what I normally realize or what I normally perceive. And God says there's some important stuff that you can't totally understand, but you need to be careful of. And so that's kind of the reason for this series. We step back and we're like, God talks about this. This is, this is not the focus of the Bible by any means, but God talks about it, and so we should talk about it too. And so that's what I'm going to do in this series. So here's what I want to do for, uh, for the rest of our time here today. I kind of changed a few times, like what I wanted to share with you today as we, as we jumped into this series. And where I landed, I, I asked a bunch of people um, in, the, in the weeks leading up to this, like as you think of like spiritual stuff or maybe the spiritual forces of evil in our world. A lot, a lot of times we use terminology like spiritual warfare, right? Like as you think of spiritual warfare, like what questions do you have? Or what things, you know, what do you believe with this? What do you understand? What don't you understand? And I got a bunch of stuff. Like, oh, there's, it, so, so I step back, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of confusion with this. There's a lot of misunderstanding with this. And a lot of times when people have confusion, it brings fear in. And so I think, you know what? So here's what I want to do. I want to spend most of our time talking through um, some of these things that um, I think are just sort of basic understandings that we need to have with the spiritual forces of darkness compared to who God is, just as the Bible says. And we're only going to have so much time, so I've got to go kind of quickly through a lot of this stuff, but I'll give you scripture references. We won't be able to jump into all of them, but I'll give you scripture references if you want to write them down and you want to dig into them a little bit more in the future. And then I want to end our time talking about how we should respond to this. Right? And so if there's evil in the world, if we have an enemy who hates us and wants us destroyed, like how should you and I respond to that? What does spiritual warfare look like for us? Okay, that's how I want to end our time. All right, so let's talk about some of these general things. Um, here's the first one. I think this is the right place for us to start. Ready? God and Satan are not equal opposites. God and Satan are not equal opposites. Satan and demons are fallen angels. That's what they are. Angels are spiritual beings. And so when God created everything, apparently he created spiritual beings before he created human beings, right? And so as far as we know, God created spiritual beings and then he created human beings. The Bible talks a lot about his creation of human beings and then sort of everything after that. But before that, he created spiritual beings. And at some point, some of those spiritual beings sinned against God and they fell. And so demons are fallen angels, right? Satan is a fallen angel, probably a fallen archangel. And so there's angels and demons, and then there's Satan and like an archangel. An archangel, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about them, but we understand them to be very strong, powerful angels, the strongest and most powerful angels, right? And so God and Satan are not equal opposites. It's not like yin and yang, you know, and like that, that all good is balanced by all evil. It's not that way at all. God is far above all of the other spiritual beings and obviously human beings as well. And so the Bible talks a little bit, you know, about like what things are going to be like in the end. And so, you know, like who's stronger? Are they equal opposites? 
right? And so what the Bible talks about, if you read the very last book of the Bible, it's Revelation. God gives this vision to um, a guy named John, same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, of what the end is going to be like. And when you read that vision, it's fascinating because you see the power of the good angels over the power of demons and Satan. It's like no contest, right? And then in the very end, when God destroys Satan, it's, it's done in the most anticlimactic way ever. And so when we understand, we start talking about evil and Satan, the first thing is really important for us to know is God is so much stronger. He is not the equal opposite, okay? And so their doom is coming and they know it. Okay, tracking with me? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. God is all-knowing, but Satan is not. God is all-knowing, but Satan is not. There's nothing in the Bible that intuits that Satan could read your mind, that he could know your thoughts, that he could implant thoughts in your mind, especially if you're a Christian. Now, Satan, and, and there's a lot of confusion on this. I've had a lot of people say things like, you know, I, I, like I was doing good, and then all of a sudden this rogue thought came into my mind. It's like, Satan planted this thought in there. And, they're like, and you're like, no, I don't, I don't think that's what it is, right? The Bible never gives us this understanding that Satan can read our mind and plant thoughts in our minds. What he is, is very smart, and he's very observant, and he's very cunning, and he's very aware of what happens in this world. He's kind of the ruler of this world, as strange as that sounds. It's actually what the Bible calls him. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it calls him the God, the God lowercase g, of this world. In uh, John 14, it calls him the prince of this world. And the reason it says, so this is sort of his domain where he has some rule, where he has some influence and authority. And so he knows what's happening here and he's working overtime to make things happen the way that he wants them to be, which is godlessness, right? That's Satan's desire in this world, that you and I have no relationship with God, that we're not talking to him, that we're not uh, uh, growing in him, that we're not learning about him. His desire is godlessness. So Satan's not all-knowing. He's just really smart, and he's observant, and he's cunning, and he's aware. Kind of going along with that, Satan is not everywhere all the time. Satan is not everywhere all the time. So I can be kind of quick here. Again, he's not God, right? And demons are not everywhere either. Why? Because they're not gods. God is omnipresent. He's, he, he, there's no place that we could go apart from him. He's everywhere, but Satan is not. Satan and demons are created spiritual beings that are finite. So just like you and me can be in one place at one time, so can Satan and so can his demons. It's important for us to get that. Here's the next thing, kind of going along with that. There aren't demons behind every corner that we need to be cautious of, that we need to be aware of, and that we need to be rebuking. There's not a demon behind every corner. I've had um, I've had interaction with multiple people that have this weird sort of, uh, I, would, I would describe it as like a fascination with demonic things. And, and it's my mission to expose these things. And, and you got to know that this is happening and this is happening. And there's a demon there and there's a demon there. Guys, demons are not everywhere, right? People who, who have that focus, like that's weird, they're, they're misled. They're not understanding things appropriately. And I'll say this, I, I kind of intuited it earlier, there is a lot more in the Bible said about God 
and who he is and how he loves us and who we are and our interaction with God, our interaction with each other than is ever said about Satan or demons or the spiritual forces of evil. And so that should not ever be our focus. You tracking with me? Should never be our focus. As Christians, God is our focus. I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Here's the next thing. Not all evil that happens in this world is because of Satan and demons. Not all the evil that happens in this world is because of Satan and demons. Much of it, in fact, I would say most of it, is because of who? Me and you. See, we, we underestimate the wickedness of our own heart, right? It's a lot easier for us to go, yeah, like there's, there's like these evil things that are like making my life difficult and they're making people do things and sometimes they make me do things and, you know, sometimes I just succumb. Oh man, he got me again. Satan got me again. And we blame somebody else for those things instead of acknowledging that, man, my heart could be pretty wicked, right? Like I could desire to do some pretty rotten things and so can you. And the Bible talks about it. It says in Jeremiah 17, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And he says, who can understand it? Jesus says in Matthew 15, listen to this. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Like, that's what's in our hearts. And so not all the evil that happens in this world is, you know, man, Satan is wreaking havoc. His demons are wreaking havoc. I'm wreaking havoc, right? And so are you. So not all the evil that happens in this world are a result of them. Here's the next thing. I got, I got, this is number six. I got eight of them, okay? So hang with me here. All right, here's the next one. Christians can't be possessed by Satan or demons, Christians can't be possessed by Satan or demons. So demonic possession is quite real. And we, we, if you read in the New Testament, you see that, right? It didn't just happen in New Testament days. It happens in our world today too. Demonic possession is quite real, but not for the Christian. And so we can look at it and like we go, you know what? Yeah, I've seen like that stuff in movies and exorcisms and stuff. And we can then sort of lob it, lot uh, it all together and go, well, there's a lot of like fake stuff and made up stuff that's in movies. This is probably not real too. This is fiction like other stuff. It's not fiction. But for the life of a Christian, we cannot be possessed by a demon or Satan or anything like that. Do you know why? Because we're already possessed by a spirit. If you're a Christian, the Bible is very clear on this. It talks about this in numerous places in the New Testament. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You've given possession. You've given ownership of your life to him, right? And so we're, it sounds weird to say it that way, like we're possessed by a spirit. That's exactly what we are. So it says this in 2 Corinthians 1. This is one example. It says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. We're owned by him, and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. So if you're a Christian, we don't have to worry about demonic possession or any strange stuff like that. You're God's possession, right? You're his, you're his child, you're in his family, you're under his protection. 
Now, we can be influenced by demons. We can be influenced demonically if we open ourselves up to that. But it's very important for us to know as a Christian, those things, the spiritual forces of darkness, have no power over us that we don't allow to have power. They have no power over us that we don't allow them to have. Okay? Here's the next one, number seven. You and I are never called to engage the devil in battle. You and I are never called to engage the devil in battle. Sometimes we can use like that terminology like spiritual warfare and we see it as like, yeah, I'm at war. I'm going to go on the offensive against the devil. I'm going to expose this. I'm going to rebuke this. I'm going to bind this and pray this hedge of protection, all this sort of stuff. But the Bible never talks about us doing that. What it says, our interaction with the devil is this. It says, resist him, James 4. It says to stand and to stand firm in Ephesians chapter 6. And it seems that you and I don't even have the authority to rebuke the devil, but that's what God does. God is the one who rebukes the devil. So there's this interesting passage in the book of Jude. Jude is this little tiny book in the New Testament. And there's this kind of strange verse in there that talks about this archangel Michael and his interaction with Satan. And this is what it says. It says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so it seems that the offensive against the devil is what the Lord does. The Lord is the one who rebukes him. So we don't need to focus on battling or rebuking or binding Satan or all of that like offensive engagement against him. What we do, and I'll talk more about this here in a minute, what we do is we resist and we stand firm. Now, there seems to be a little bit more latitude with demons, right? And so when we read in the New Testament, you see some of Jesus' disciples casting out demons and rebuking demons. And so I would, I would say this to you. If you um, sit here today and you feel like there is some demonic thing that's happening in your life or the life of somebody that you love, I would encourage you to come talk to me or to come talk to other leaders in the church because it's not a game. It's not something that we want to uh, 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 unknowingly mess around with, right? Like there is power because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but it's something that you never want to do alone. So I'd encourage you to come talk to one of us about that. And all that leads to, let me give, give you one more thing that um, I think is an important one. It's a question that I've had in my life and a lot of us have had over the years. So we could look at, at uh, Satan and demonic things and we can go, it's so evil, it's so rotten, why would God even allow it to exist, right? Like if Satan is so bad, so evil, if demons are so bad, they're so evil, why does God, if, and God is so good and he's so righteous, why does he even allow them to exist? Or for that matter, why does he allow evil in our heart to exist, right? If God's so good, why does he allow that? Maybe we could say it simply this way. Why does God allow such evil? Like, why does he allow that? That's a question that a lot of people have had. It's a, it's a very valid question. And it's especially a question that we have when we're personally experiencing some sort of evil or injustice in our lives. Let, let me quickly, I, I don't presume to have all of the answers here, but let me quickly in three minutes answer in a way that's been helpful for me as I've personally wrestled with this. In God's economy, in God's um, way of structuring things, right, in God's order of things, for whatever reason, freedom is of the utmost importance to God. 
in God's economy, in God's way of ordering things, freedom is of the utmost importance to God. So whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, God values freedom in his created beings, that's us and spiritual created beings, he values that to a really, really high degree. So, for example, we've all experienced pain and suffering in our lives, right? Like every single one of us in this room, that is like part of the human condition. We deal with hard things. We deal with pain and suffering. Main, God, to God, maintaining our freedom is more important than removing all of the pain and suffering from our lives. To God, maintaining human and spiritual beings' freedom is more important to him than removing all the pain and suffering in our lives. He allows those things to happen, never alone. He walks with us through it, right? If we want him to, if we invite him to. But to him, maintaining freedom is more important than removing all the pain and suffering. Similarly, to God, maintaining freedom, our freedom is more important than removing all the heartache of this life. Everybody in this room, I'm sure, has experienced some sort of heartache. Again, it's part of the human condition. To God, he's saying, I, your freedom is more important to me than removing all of the heartache. But here's the promise. As you go through heartache, I'll be with you. I'll walk with you. I'll help you. It's the same thing with evil. To God, it is more important for him to maintain the freedom of his created beings than it is to remove all evil from this world. And if you're like me, we can look at that and we can go, why? It doesn't seem right, God. Like, why is freedom so darn important to you? Well, here's what it is. Here's what I think it is. Because without genuine and real freedom of choice, there's no such thing as love. There's no such thing as trust. There's no such thing as faith. Say that again. Without genuine and real freedom of choice, there's no such thing as love or trust or faith. Love is not love if I cannot freely choose it or freely reject it, right? My wife, Marcia, does, it is not, whatever she feels to me, it is not love if she has no choice but to respond to me that way, right? If she doesn't have the freedom to reject me and not love me, what she exhibits to me is not love. There's no such thing as forced love. That's not a thing. Trust is not trust if I couldn't freely choose to trust something else, right? And so the trust that God calls us to is only genuine and meaningful if I could actually choose to freely choose to trust something else. Trust only means something is if, is if I, there's these alternatives and I choose you. I choose to trust you. It's the same thing with faith. Faith is only meaningful and real if I have options and I put my faith here, right? Freedom is essential for those things. And so God allows sin and evil to exist in me and you and spiritual beings because without freedom that allows those things to happen, genuine love, genuine trust, genuine faith, I'd add to that jo genuine joy, genuine hope, and all these other really good things in life wouldn't really exist. For them to be meaningful and genuine, we have to have freedom in those things. And so I, I don't feel like that answers that question perfectly, but for me, it's helpful. Why does God allow it? I don't totally understand, 
But in his economy, in his way of ordering things, our freedom is essential. For the things that he calls us to do and be, I have to be able to freely choose those things or freely not choose those things. You with me? Okay. So next week, we're going to start looking at like some specific ways that I think the enemy engages us in our culture. And so I think it looks differently depending on where you are, you know, depending on like the way that the enemy works in Haiti is different than the way that the enemy works here. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to spend some time kind of looking at some of those ways that he looks to engage us and pull us away from God. What I want to do for the rest of our time, the next five minutes or so, is I want to look at two verses. Really, it's like a verse and a half. And really, I want to focus on seven words here that this is what God, this is what God describes as spiritual warfare to us. We have an enemy who's real. How are we to respond to that? Okay, so I want to look at two verses. Actually, I'm going to throw them up on the screen. You can write down the reference if you want. It's 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and in the beginning of verse 9. So this is what it says. This is what God says through Peter. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith. So let me dig into that for just a second here. So that first part, be alert and of sober mind. When it, how it's written originally in the Greek is actually flip-flopped. It says, be of sober mind and be alert. So we'll start there. Be of sober mind. What does that actually mean? Well, it's interesting. Those were, so if you were to put this in layman's terms, here's what that means. Be of sober mind. Essentially what it means is relax. Like this is how it starts out. This is the context of spiritual warfare. God starts out and he says, relax. Chill out. Be calm. Be collected. Be clear-minded and be thoughtful. And I like that. I appreciate that because when we start talking about Satan's and Satan and demons and all this stuff, it can make us nervous and it can make us jumpy and scared. So he starts off and he says, relax, right? Be calm, be clear-minded. Second thing he says is be alert, right? We know what be alert means. It means keep watch. Be, so relax, but keep watch, be aware, don't zone out. Be on your guard. Give this your attention. Why? Because you've got an enemy. You've got an enemy who's like a lion prowling around looking to devour you. And we already talked about that. We said Satan hates you. He hates you. And he wants you destroyed. Certainly he wants you not giving glory to God. And so he's like this prowling lion looking to devour you. And I don't think it's by accident that, that uh, in the Bible it equates Satan to a lion. Like if you think about what a lion is like, a lion's strong, a lion's unpredictable, a lion's untamable. He's a predator animal who is usually the king of anywhere that he goes, right? And we already said that he's called the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of this world. So he says... Be sober mind, relax, right? Be clear minded, relax, but be alert because you have an enemy who's like a lion stalking you, looking to devour you. And you think, well, what do we do? Because I can't take on a lion, right? Like how, do, how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, we're not helpless. God tells us what to do. What does he tell us to do? What does it say? Resist him, right? 
Resist him. What does it mean to resist him? Well, it's an interesting word. It means to set against. I'm, I'm set against him. I'm opposed. It's actually the opposite of joining together. That's what the word means. It's the opposite of joining together. So I think of like two magnets of the same polarity. They don't join. You can't push them together. And if you push one toward the other, it pushes the other away. That's what this means here. Resist him. Resist the devil. Oppose him. Be against him. Don't join together with him. But instead, stand firm in the faith. You know, you know another way of saying that? Be unshakable in your faith. Be resolute. Be determined in your faith, in your trust in Jesus, in the gospel, in the good news of the gospel, that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die to pay for everything in your life that needs to be paid for. Guys, I want you to take this in. Like, what does spiritual warfare look like? We can get this so twisted and think, well, I, I don't know. Should I be doing this? Should I be on the offensive? Should I? What does spiritual warfare look like? It's so easy. Be alert. Relax. Be alert. Resist the devil, resist evil, and trust Jesus. Cling to Jesus. What, what do you think that means? What does it mean to trust Jesus? I lean into that relationship, right? Like I spend, I spend time with him. I read his word, who he is and how he's described here. I, I talk to him. I listen to him. It's not mental illness, right? I listen to him. I worship him. I love the things that he loves, and I love the people that he loves. See, when we do that, when we lean in, when we trust him, we're safeguarded. We're protected. We can look at spiritual warfare and like talk of the devil and demons and be like, oh, I'm scared. I don't know. Should I be scared? I don't know. I don't see anything, but like this seems like it's a scary thing. Relax. If we're, if we're strong in him, if we trust in him, there's nothing we need to fear. There's nothing that we need to worry about. We don't need to have a weird preoccupation with evil and demons and that sort of stuff. When we're strong in our relationship with God, we have nothing to fear. We're like a strong tower that can never be shaken. And so here's how I want to end. I just want to end with, I don't know, a, a, a question, a fundamental question, a challenge. Like if that's the answer to spiritual warfare, it's not engage. It's relax, be alert resist and cling to Jesus, here's my question to you. Are you standing firm with Jesus? Like he's the answer, right? Like everything in this series, it's all building up. I'll give, you, I'll give away the topic of my Easter sermon. It's all building up to Jesus destroying the enemy, right? Like that's what all this is building toward. There's one who died on a cross 2,000 years ago because he loves you and he loves me and he destroyed the enemy that hates you and hates me and he's available for us now to have a relationship with. So I just challenge you, whether you sit here today and you're like, yep, I'm a Christian, I'm following him, I challenge you, like, are you leaning into him closely? Are you spending time with him? Are you learning about him? Are you enjoying him? Are you worshiping him? If you sit here today and you're like, I, I wouldn't identify myself as a Christian. I'm thinking about it. I'm here. I really challenge you. Talk to somebody. Like, don't waste the time. If you have questions, talk to, some, talk to me. Talk to one of us. We'd love to try to help. I don't know that we'll have all the answers. But we'll be honest with you and we'll pray with you. He's the answer. 
to all of the issues and all the struggles that we have in life. He's the answer to our battle against evil.